Main eventing in Boston. A pretender to the women's championship. A heckler gets slapped. And so much more. It's the story of Cora Livingston, part 10. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Oh my goodness gracious, you pressed the button long after I pressed a button. I'm going to press several buttons to make this. So many buttons, I can't even name them all. There's not many, I'm going to press them a lot. What, is, what am I even doing? What is happening? How is this working? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter. I am a pro wrestling booker. I am a pro wrestling ring announcer at times. But more importantly for today, I am a pro wrestling historian. And I am joined by my co-host... A holder of belts in several towns. It's Heidi Howitzer. How the heck are you? Oh, uh, my cup runneth over, and I'm preparing for all of my buttons to be pushed. Evidently, I have been forewarned. Buttons will be pressed emotionally, mentally, and while editing, even physically. Actual buttons, metaphoric buttons spiritual buttons. It's just getting dumb already. But since you hit the download button, we should probably get back to the task at hand. Welcome to Pro Wrestling History Nerds. Welcome to Cora Livingston Part 10. And Cora Livingston Part 10 does imply there is a Cora Livingston Parts 1 through 9. I would recommend listening to them if this is your first go at things, your first visit to the Hippodrome Express. If you are just checking this show out, I, I appreciate it. I'm glad you're here. And if you know a bit about pro wrestling in the 1920s, well, heck, come on in. Have a seat. Would you like a tasty beverage? We're making hot drinks tonight. It's kind of cold outside. But if this is all new to you, maybe start at part one, learn about Cora's origin, her, the early part of her career, how she became a champion, how she became a star, the evolution of her character. Get the groundwork laid so that when you catch up to here, it all makes crystal clear sense. Think that's the best way to do it? I do, and I think there is plenty of content to keep you busy for a while if you're just now uh, pressing the button. And speaking of content, I do want to give the disclaimer on the content of this show, because I am doing the best job I can with the materials I can find. Cora Livingston, her career was not necessarily filling arenas or filling baseball stadiums. She was not Frank Gotch. She was not Ed the Strangler Lewis. But she was a star with a very long career, and her career was documented in the sports pages, in the entertainment pages, in advertisements for burlesque and vaudeville halls. So pretty much daily for many, many years, sometimes decades, I could find information about her, but there is a lot of information missing. You might say, Nick, how can there be missing information on a 10-part and counting series? To which I say, I am finding lots of information about her. I'm creating the best narrative that I can. But he is trying really hard. I am doing my darndest. But there is a certain element of a dark age. And as I'll say time and time again, we don't refer to the dark ages as the dark ages because nothing was happening and everyone was an idiot. It's called the Dark Ages because very few surviving documents exist, so there isn't a lot of information written down that survives to this day. Similarly with pro wrestling for some people in the 19-teens, the 1920s, because, hey, you know what, there was a little thing called World War I happening, and sometimes that bumped the sports pages out a little bit. Or sometimes 
Nobody covered the actual match that was advertised. So sometimes I'll have information on a months-long feud between Cora Livingston and another woman, and the big blow-off, I've got nothing. Because there was a big baseball game that week, or the boxing match that was down the street somehow did a lot better. So yes, sometimes there is information missing, and maybe it exists out there, maybe I can't find it in the archives to which I am digging through, but this is what I can find, this is what I'm presenting, this is me telling the best truth about Cora and her life and her career as I can put together. Sorry guys, life is a mystery. Everyone must stand alone. Oh no, we're not we're we're not singing songs here. <laughs> I it was very, very hard for me to not just keep going. So you are not alone. So in part nine, we left off towards the end of 1921. She was back in Maine. She was back to Maine eventing during World War One. She had a big <laughs> resurgence. Would you say she was Maine eventing? You are fired and I quit. Good. But yes, she was back to the top of her game. She was in Maine. She was a big draw, a big attraction, a big star. Granted, the promoter had a little bit of trouble because Cora was hurt for one show. He lost his building for the other, had to rush her across town and reset up. That's showbiz, baby. That's the way it goes. And now we're going to pick up with the Daily Kennebec Journal, again, we're still in Maine, on December 31st, 1921. Women wrestlers delight Matt fans at Brunswick Hall. Quote, Two good wrestling matches at the town hall this evening were enjoyed by about 150 people. The preliminary was between Cora Livingston of Newark, Ohio, and Mary Stearns of Lowell, Massachusetts. Miss Livingston won the match with two falls out of three. She got the first fall in eight minutes with an arm lock. Miss Stearns got the second fall in three minutes with a head scissors. Miss Livingston got the deciding fall in four minutes with a full Nelson. It was the first time women wrestlers have appeared in the town for many years. So again, still conquering the North, still up in Maine. That was her last big match before heading back down. Because in the Boston Globe on January 2nd, 1922, Women to wrestle here. Turner Bowser bout also. While the main event was Joe Turner versus Paul Bowser, it was Cora versus Mae Kelly that got the headline in this announcement for the Grand Opera House event the following night. And on the fourth, the Globe reported that Cora won in seven minutes. Hooray! Cora's killing it. So you mentioned an arm lock. Is that like a arm bar? What kind of twisty uncomfortable thing might that be there's several possibilities on something like that because keep in mind sometimes you could watch anything from a modified straight armbar to a what we would now call a fujiwara armbar to a double wrist lock to any sort of arm extension and they would call it an armbar or sometimes a bar arm believe it or not and so sometimes it is very difficult to parse what was meant by a finishing hold. It's kind of like a stranglehold because sometimes you'll say, hey, it was finished with a stranglehold. Well, sometimes that's a 
like a guillotine hang hold type of move. Sometimes it's more like a rear naked choke. Sometimes it's literally just wrapping your fingers around the person's throat for a mount and pressing down. Oh, that is the only one I am capable of, of all of those. Yeah, so it's sometimes very difficult to know what the press called things. So yes, it becomes very difficult sometimes based on media reports to understand exactly what the finish is. Granted, some are easier, a toe hold or a full Nelson, but when you start getting into an arm lock or an arm bar, that could mean 15 different things sometimes, many of them not actually arm bars. That's the downside of having sometimes non-wrestling fans doing wrestling reporting for the sports pages. Oh, that never happens anymore. Just like everything else we talk about that never happens with wrestling anymore. <laughs> the Meriden, Connecticut Journal on February 5th, 1922 covers Cora in Boston. Quote, the last time Cora was here, she was a blonde, a trifle slighter in build and speedier, but no better wrestler than she is today. Cora has changed in more ways than one. For instance, now she is a fine type of Tissian beauty, weighs around 140 pounds, and looks and acts capable of tossing her opponents as often as they could be fed to her. She had for an opponent last night at the Grand Opera House, Mae Kelly, a big, healthy-looking girl who promised to give Cora a battle. There was no hair-pulling or anything of the kind. It was straight catch-as-catch-can wrestling, as good as is seen between some men grapplers, better than a lot of them. So, high praise from the mainstream media. And that's interesting, too, because I don't think we've seen a lot um, at this point. And feel free to correct me as a, if I'm wrong, which, you know, wouldn't be the first or last time. Um, but I don't think we've really seen anything at this point that compares, uh, like, earlier parts of her career, um, compares, you know, Cora to herself in any regard. Correct, yeah, because for people who have listened to this whole series, Cora used to be a savage. She would pull hair. She would gouge eyes. She would throw punches. She would throw elbows. She would do every dirty thing in the book because her entire act was about getting heat with the crowd, making everyone real mad, everybody wanting to see her lose. It ends in a disqualification. So everybody comes back later to see her lose. But she yeah, Cora was out of control, guys. Like, just just all over the place. You think fucking cheap, shitty heel, hair pulling, eye gouging, face breaking, all the not nice things. Cora was a shit stirrer. And she had mellowed in her old age, this advanced portion of her career. And I feel like that's one of a couple of things. She's not a young Hellraiser trying to just get as much attention as possible. She sells tickets on her own merit, not on the insanity of the experience. And like most heels, if you stick around long enough, you tend to get a babyface turn whether you like it or not. People want to see you because you are now a famous person in this circle, in this sport, in this scene. So the forced emotional manipulation with all that heat, doesn't really mean as much as it once did. So therefore, it becomes unnecessary. Right, exactly. But yeah, it has been really interesting to see the evolution of her style, really. And a case in point on how 
you didn't really need her to break out all the bells and whistles of violence and madness to move tickets because she was a celebrity unto herself. Case in point, the Caledonian record, Vermont again, January 12th, 1922, an ad stating, quote, Coming Friday, January 20th, Cora Livingston, the world champion lady wrestler. Other big wrestling bouts, watch this paper for details. Remember the date, January 20th. So this deep into her career, and they're still able to just get buzz off of just her name. No building announced, no opponent announced, no plan announced. Just Cora Livingston, January 20th, knowing it would move tickets when available. Which, Which is, is phenomenal. phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's got, got her name, name. she's, she's made. made. Shows, Shows up, up gets, the, gets the job, job done, done, gets, gets paid, paid, living the dream. dream. The same paper announced details on January 14th with Women Champ will wrestle here Friday, Cora Livingston feature of twin Matt Bill at Armory. It reports how Cora, quote, will appear here and about to a finish with a worthy opponent. The wrestling match will be put under the auspices of the Fairbanks AA, and in order to accommodate the influx of fans expected, the Armory has been engaged for the purpose. Her opponent was announced as Violet Delmond of New York City, and the match will be two out of three, no time limit. So again, we are just plainly stating Cora Livingston will be here. Here is her opponent, secondary information. And as an important notice, we got a big goddamn building because we know all of you people are excited to see her and will buy tickets. Yeah, she's advertising herself or her name is doing all the work for her at this point kind of wild. On the same date, the St. Albans Daily Messenger had the advertisement for that night's matches, printed as main feature Cora Livingston, lady champion, versus Miss Bradley of Gloucester. Second feature, Chaz Betro versus Paul Bowser. Many of the local papers were calling him Ed Bowser, but you know what, it's the thought that counts. So do we know it's still the same? Well, I guess if it's, if he's a Bowser on a card with Cora, it's going to be the same fucking Bowser. Yeah, I, Never I, mind. Yeah, I also had that like, well, maybe there could be a different Bowser, but when some of them call him Ed, but most of them call him Paul, you can tell it's just lazy journalism because it's wrestling. Sometimes. Maybe uh, that's his working name sometimes. Maybe he likes to work a slightly different gimmick in those towns. He's more of an he feels like more of an Ed. It's just oh. it's just him wearing a different hat. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And how did it go? The St. Alban Daily Messenger on January 14th, 1922. Big crowd out to see women grapplers. Quote, One of the largest crowds that has ever attended a wrestling match here was present at the Opera House last night, they claimed, as they nearly always claimed. You notice how many times it's, oh, it's the biggest crowd that's ever come to see a wrestling match in this town. Well, unless it's an endless escalation, I have a feeling it's a bit of hyperbole. Yes. <laughs> Cora won the first match in eight minutes with a full body hold. Miss Bradley won the second in four minutes. And Cora came back, surprise to surprise, to win the third in five minutes. Quote, this match was all that could have been expected. And both contestants worked fast, clean, and were very clever. Now, there's no wrestling like clever wrestling. What I hear. The Boston Globe and the Entertainment Pages on January 18th, 1921, 
I really love looking through the ads for the various vaudeville, music hall, burlesque, and movie house advertisements. Every night in most cities, there were a dozen or more wild things happening on the live stage. Anyway, Cora was set to face Miss Bobby Miller, along with Cyclone Ross versus Paul Bowser. And oh, Kath good name. Oh, yeah, Cyclone Ross. It's, you can't go wrong. It's like um, a shitty, a shitty Luchin gimmick with like the most bland name on the planet. We love to see it. And Chaz Metro versus Joey Zabisco at the Grand Opera House the following night. <laughs> Chaz Metro. I want to see Cyclone fucking Ross versus uh, Chaz Metro. That could, be on, that could be on an indie card anywhere right now. Chaz Metro sounds like he's from the 21st and a half century. <laughs> like he's from the, he's from like a nebulous future. I like to think he, he wrestles and you know, those um shitty silver, like polyester shirts, like button down t-shirts that existed in the nineties. Oh yes. The club shirt. Yeah, of course you do. Yes. That was, that was our era. Um, we're aging ourselves guys. Um, I like to think that's what Chaz Metro wears. That's what he wrestles in, at least entrance attire, right? I would certainly hope so. Okay, good. Good talk. The Boston Globe on February 13th, 1922, had a piece about all the rad as fuck, probably my words, not theirs, matches <laughs> coming up that week. Dick Daviscourt versus Ed Lewis at the Mechanics Building, Jim Lados versus Joe Polk, and Vladik Zabisco versus Laurent Jesterman. And at the Grind Opera House, John Kalinas versus Paul Bowser, Charlie Metro versus Joe Sabowski, and Cora Livingston versus Miss Olga Nelson of Lynn. So, it's the it's the early twenties. Those are the who's who of wrestling, and Cora Livingston is still right there in the thick of it. Yeah, Strangler Lewis is on the card. Um, Charlie Metro. Charlie Metro, man of the future. Yes, man of the future, man of the 21st and a half century. No, and, and that's the thing, too, is, I mean, outside of the occasional card we saw where it was just Cora as the wrestling attraction, um, it seems like, obviously, you still have the, okay, here's our card with the token women's match. Well, at least the tokens women's tokens token women's match was Cora. Yeah, and a lot of this can be put at the, you can say, hey, you know what, she's only getting this spot because she's married to the promoter. Well, yeah, that, that definitely helps. But here's the thing, that gets the opportunity, that doesn't earn you the review. Right, exactly. So yeah, it's like the, the nepotism thing. Oh, they only got that spot because of who their parents are, or who they're married to, or who they're dating. Well, yes, that does obviously provide more opportunities. But that's only an opportunity. If you can't walk through the door and walk the walk, it doesn't fucking matter. And it's and great, great because if you see them fail, fail you, you just know that they're, they're extra, extra terrible, terrible at whatever they were, they were trying, trying to get in with. That's for all you bitter vengeance seekers out there. Take joy in that. Bask in that. You'll be noticing a lot less business in New York around this time. Boxing and Wrestling Commissioner William Muldoon had been clamping down on licenses for boxing and wrestling, keeping matches from happening at armory buildings, and had reinstated flying and rolling falls in matches. 
These were the standard rules in the 1880s and the 1890s with the Greco-Roman format, the time and style of Muldoon's championship reign, but did not work for the modern style of the 1920s. So this was part of Muldoon's quest to legitimize combat sports by pushing out the con men and the fakers, clearly not understanding what made wrestling fun at this point. So that's, that's everyone in wrestling. <laughs> the con men and the fakers, if you get rid of those, uh, that eliminates probably 98% of the wrestling business. Exactly. The Washington Herald on March 4th, 1922, reported that, quote, Jack Curley, who used to own the wrestling game here, but doesn't anymore with the present commission in control, declared today that the game has been killed in New York by the commission ruling permitting rolling and flying falls. Johnny Fleeson, referee, who has worked in the few big bouts held this year, immediately replied that if the rules killed the game, it deserved to die, as these regulations are only certain guarantees against faking. That would come from a fucking referee. Yes. What that, an ass. Yeah, because Muldoon was kayfabe on top of kayfabe. He was, he worked matches. He would never admit to working matches. He got exposed working matches and told 15 weird lies on top of each other to cover his ass. But he wanted wrestling presented in the way it was presented back in those days during his career, where it would be a three-hour headlock fest under Greco-Roman rules and using the flying and rolling falls. And if you're not familiar with that, it means that, say, I step on your foot and push you and you fall back and your shoulders hit the mat, that counts as a fall. I don't have to hold you down for a one, two, three. Or okay, okay. Wait, but I have a question on that note. As the uncoordinated, what if unprompted, I fall, shoulders hit the mat, then no you, contact? Yeah, if you fall, if you slip on your own uh, shoelace and you fall down, guess what? That is a flying fall or a rolling fall. So if you catch somebody with a suplex and just on the contact of landing, their sh both shoulders hit, boom, one out of three done right there. So, uh, okay, so I'm actually kind of. I'm kind of for this as not like as a, a catch all, but I kind of want one match a card to be this, but I want it to be like an on the fly one where no one knows what's going to happen. I want it to super kayfabe. Yeah. It's, and it's a style, even if you were, if the crowd was still used to those rules, because if you implemented flying and rolling falls in a wrestling show today, it would land about as well as it did in the 1920s. An entire generation yeah. of fans has no idea what these are, and they completely disrupt the storytelling ways of catch-as-catch-can worked matches. Absolutely, because if you think about it, I mean, how much can you even do without someone's shoulders going down at some point, at least touching? I mean... Uh, yeah, virtually nothing. I mean, that's that's like a 30-second long match or a match that goes 30 minutes where it's just fucking two humans just struggling against each other. And I don't... I'm good. I'll watch UFC if I want to see that shit. And Muldoon was widely disliked, widely derided, and widely mocked, not just by athletes but by the press from coast to coast and you can hear more about that in the long series i did about wrestling in the 1920s which is in the archive 
from the Mitchburg Sentinel, March 7th, 1922, sports chatter that, quote, Cora Livingston, world champion woman wrestler, has written promoter Charleston for a chance to appear at City Hall, either in exhibition or in a real match against any lady in the business. So, you know Ooh. what, you it doesn't matter when your career is or how high you up on the card, sometimes you still have to contact the promoter your darn self trying to get booked. Oh, such is life. And from the same paper, same page, a large ad for My Boy, starring Jackie Coogan at the Coming Theater. Jackie Coogan became a child star in Charlie Chaplin's The Kid, was in multiple hit movies, was like the Macaulay Culkin of the 20s. He was a huge pop star and lost all his money to his swindling parents and manager and inspired the Coogan Law, which keeps parents from spending all of a child actor's money. He later played Uncle Fester in the TV series The Addams Family. I was just about to ask what happened to him and how did that turn out? Now we know. And now and you know. That's not too terrible. I mean, the part of the beginning is terrible, but at least he, you know, got some come up. It's never too late for a comeback. <laughs> Supposedly. The Boston Globe, March 13th, 1922. Cora announced against Miss Janet Henry of Manchester, New Hampshire, on the undercard of Colonus versus Bowser. The headline read, quote, Colonus Bowser, map match will be for blood claiming that the tough battles the two have had recently, quote, means a rough match from the call of time. So I do love the hyperbolic build of feuds even in this day, where it's like, oh, this person cheap shotted this, this person DQ'd for this, and now even the press is all fired up like, oh, they're going to kill each other when they get in there this time. Yes, this time. This is the time. No, they do a really good job of hyping it. I mean, they didn't exactly have video packages to uh, get you all excited for what was to come at the upcoming wrestling bout. And it's also a slightly different world than what it was even 10, 15 years in the past. Because during the days of you know, Evan Lewis, Martin Burns, Dan McLeod, Frank Gotch, they treated it like how a big boxing match would be today, where... Wrestlers weren't working this crazy schedule. They weren't going town to town nonstop working matches Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It would be one big giant match every couple of weeks. And it'd be like, oh, we came to this town and we're having a fight camp and we're putting on exhibitions for the press. And, you know, the people get to come watch the training and sparring sessions. And, oh boy, you know, the, the two wrestlers ran into each other outside the general store and got into a war of words and shoving. They nearly broke into a fight and they are to be separated. What are the betting odds? What is this? So it would set up and be a absolute sports spectacle for the sake of getting everybody riled up, showing up, and betting as much money on who they thought was a sure thing. Well, now well I know I'm excited now. Yeah, and it's now it's a completely different model. So yeah, the press, the newspapers really did play an important part in any storytelling if you're continuing a feud beyond just one match in one town. No, makes sense. Absolutely. On the 17th, the Globe reported that Cora and Janet Henry each scored a fall, so I assume it was a draw. It was a little vague on the information, because why wouldn't it be? 
From the Dayton Daily News, March 28, 1922, quote, Boston may be the center of American culture, but they are numbered in the hub sum. Excellent girl athletes who are prominent in the plebeian sport of wrestling. Miss Cora Livingston is shown here applying the preliminary to her favorite body scissors. Miss Jane Henry is the young lady on her neck. The two are training for a series of contests soon to be staged in Boston. The photo shows Cora, who appears to be in great shape, performing what looks like either a guard pass or a setup for a sharpshooter. Not the case, but it looks that way. It's odd that I see a new photo of Cora and think, she's still in great shape. As though she were rocketing towards 50, she was still only in her early 30s at this point, but had been wrestling for 15 years practically nonstop. Wild. Absolutely wild. That's just not something you see frequently, especially not with women, but I mean, across the board, it's just not something you see frequently. Um, I mean, Japan, sure, but not over here. Well, especially in these days where so many women wrestlers either come in hot and are either, you know, discarded or become minor league stars. Because guess what? In the 19-teens, 1920s, a um, woman who wasn't a housewife by 23 was... Well, you're a spinster. Yeah, you might as well be a serial killer as far as society is concerned and their approval. Right, absolutely. I mean, even if you were uh, wrestling already past a certain time, I mean, you were expected to get married and pop out kids and be a good little housewife. And I guess, you know, I mean, Cora got married and had at least one child, yes? Correct, yeah. I mean, all everything kind of shows to her taking a break and showing up with a kid, so I assume that child exists. All right, but that, is, that's kind of an anomaly. Yeah, everything that's discussed about her is always wrestling-related, and whatever version of her story best serves selling wrestling tickets at that point. We have seen her biography shift a little bit here and there based on the era. But yeah, there's not really like a great, you know, a shoot interview or a big behind the scenes look at Paul Bowser's promoting. So yeah, we do work with what limited information we have about her personal life. And you might also be noticing Boston coming up a lot lately. That's because Cora and Paul relocated there in 1922. Very quickly, Bowser became the promoter of wrestling in the area, aligning himself with Billy Sandow's group and essentially pushing out the established kingpin, George V. Toohey, who had been involved in the sport for decades. If the name George Toohey sounds familiar, he worked a lot with Tom Jenkins, Dan McLeod, a lot of the big stars of the previous generation, and he had a stranglehold on the wrestling and sports scene in Boston. He was the sports editor for a major paper in Boston. So for Bowser to come in and just push him out really said something about what he brought to the table. From the Fitchburg, Massachusetts Sentinel, February 22nd, 1922, Leah Minster books women wrestlers. Cora Livingston and Olga Nelson appear at City Hall in preliminary bout. Quote, as it is the first women's wrestling match ever staged in this section of the country, it should appeal to lovers of sport, not only from a sporting standpoint, but also from its aspect of a novelty. We're popping territories. 
So yes, while it is nice that they're actually excited about having women's wrestling there for the first time, and not attacking them with the power of the church and women's groups and everything else, but yeah, they at least are being honest where it's not just going to be a sport, it's a spectacle. Which, in pro wrestling, shocking. Absolutely shocking. And maybe a little disappointing. Truly, truly. The Bridgeport, Connecticut Telegram on May 3rd, 1922, with another origin story for Cora. Quote, Having more pep than the average youngster, she grew up a bit of a tomboy, and on her graduation from the Buffalo High School at 16, could run, put up her hands, and wrestle as well as many of the boys of that age, and a whole lot better than the average. There was talk of a convent for Cora, but she preferred sawdust of the stage, and after several months of training, she made her debut as a girl wrestler in the Lafayette Theater in Buffalo. There's a short rundown of her career, including the match versus Laura Bennett, but here that match takes place in 1914, which lends credence to my theory that the rumored second match was just the first match mislabeled and put into the wrong year. So when they say, oh, she had a second match against Bennett in 1914, no, it was just the first match told a second time, accidentally put in the wrong year. Because honestly, if you're, even if like you're talking to Cora and she's working this many matches, this nonstop, traveling all over, unless she's keeping records, who could keep those stories straight herself? Guys, just, just to put some perspective on this, cage match exists, right? And if you are not familiar with cage match, cage match is a website that has a record theoretically has record of every single match. Every wrestler has wrestled, whether you're an indie wrestler, whether you're a name, whatever it's supposed to have every match you've worked win loss record, you know, cause wrestling is real, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It is 2024 everyone has wrestled plenty of matches that are not listed on cage match. I probably have wrestled twice as many matches that are on there. So, I mean, we have information at our fingertips uh, to a breath that was not the case there and things are still getting omitted. And if you look at Cora's cage match, she only has like a handful of matches listed in there. None of them being the big important ones. Because apparently I'm the only maniac who will sit down and do a deep dive of this magnitude. Which means Nick Gosser has to go in and uh, update Cora Livingston's case match. Oh. You get to be that that person. And I, one thing I really love from her new biography is how it was a choice between the convent and wrestling. Like, what a weird binary option path. Like, well, you can't have Jesus and have wrestling. Yeah, they would have none of that. That's a good one. I'm fired. Holy moly. From the Skowhagen, Maine, independent reporter on Thursday, May 4th, 1922, Cora was announced against Bobby Miller as the semi-main for the Paul Bowser versus Harry Delamano match at the Lakewood Theater that coming Monday. In the Sports World Briefs on November 21st, 1922, Many papers included, quote, notwithstanding many strenuous years spent in the wrestling game, Cora Livingstone, of course we got the typo, is still the cleverest of female grapplers. So this was just a little throwaway line as part of sports trivia that was coast to coast. And it is interesting to see that 
Cora's long career is being recognized in a positive light. It's not, what's this crazy dame still doing wrestling? Or why isn't she home with her child and making dinner for her husband? Or why is she still on the top? Oh boy, she's she hit the 30 wall or just whatever. Whoa. She's basically all dried up. Yeah, it's it's just nice to see that it's being seen as a positive that she's been the champion as long as she's been, that her long career is seen as an accomplishment, not a crime against the social order. Yeah, and also on that note too, they're celebrating this long title run. I mean, there's people who complain if someone has held a title for like a month, <laughs> you know, or or a couple of months. Cora's been defending these um, titles, championships, um, physical titles, and uh, verbal titles, I guess, um, for years. Over a decade and at this point. Be, yeah, yeah, it seems to be very positive. No complaints to be seen, or at least none that we're really coming across. I like to think there were still, like, really shitty, creepy, like, male marks of women's wrestling who just, they just didn't have Twitter to voice their questionable opinions at this point. So it was just what they were talking about at the saloon afterwards, going for their, their nickel beers to complain about uh, how the, the, the women's outfits weren't as revealing as they should be. But that their match was really a banger. Which sounds like that's the case every time. Which it actually was. (laughs) Yes. And you probably noticed there is another big time gap between her matches. Was she worn down from her latest hot run? Was she dealing with injuries? Was she burned out? Was she too busy helping Paul Bowser run his promotion in school? Maybe a little bit of all the above. Again, no way to know. From the Boston Globe. December 17th, 1922. A rundown on the wrestlers appearing at the Howard, including Cora versus May Kelly, the following afternoon. The entertainment ad page featured Big Wrestling Carnival with Cora Livingston, Stanley Stasiak, and others. Heads Up Burlesque, Vaudeville and Pictures. Always something doing, 1 to 11. The best ads, every single time. Those are my favorite. Wow. Uh, and yeah, Cora, again, a main attraction. And at this point, like, I almost want to just find everything about the Howard Theater. I'm now fascinated with this venue. Just like, it's just her home. It seems like they have wild stuff every single night. And whoever is booking and promoting and doing the advertisements for them, geniuses across the board. Well, there's always something doing. One to 11. One to 11. On a scale on a scale from one to ten, they're always going one to eleven. <laughs> March twenty fifth, nineteen twenty three, Boston Globe, another big time jump. Cora is back at the Howard advertisement. Quote: The Grapple Champions will occupy the center of the pad this week at the Howard, and Cora Livingston, the Speed Baby of all female wrestling champions, will put her opponents down with a thud. Wait, the Speed Baby? Speed baby. She is the speed okay. baby of all female champions. Got it. Just wanted to make sure I heard that one. I, I wanted her to have that on her trunks. Kind of just <laughs> speed baby. Cora, the speed baby Livingston. Yes, yes. And like the, the white um, like hand stitch cursive. 
extra old school with it. And again, we have multiple months with no mention of Korra. And, and again, I have to bring up, is this a genuine time gap or just no surviving media notices that I could find? Dark Ages versus inactivity, no way to know. So I just correlate the information, correlate the information <laughs> the best that I can and present it the best I can as well. Because for all I know, she had 20 amazing matches. But since I don't have that information, I just have to kind of go with the gaps. April 18th, 1923, Jersey Observer and Jersey Journal, Cora versus Anna McDonald added to the undercard of Giorgio Calza versus Charlie Cutler at Victoria Hall in Jersey City. Again, she is the undercard, but she's undercarding to these massive matches. Charlie Cutler was a big deal. He was a big star in pro wrestling. And for her to be on the undercard isn't necessarily a push down the ladder. It's her being part of mainstream professional wrestling as it was taking off in the 20s. From the April 19th, 1923 Battleboro, Vermont reformer, Cora Livingston versus Hazel Kennard, the New England favorite, given equal billing against Stanley Stasiak, the Polish Lion, versus Geo Farmer Bailey, the New England champion. Everyone's a champion. Everybody brings their titles. And sometimes, like, everybody wins. Yeah, sometimes I wonder because clearly a lot of these championships are fake, are just made to sell tickets. Because if everybody was showing up with belts, I swear to God, it would look like the front row at Monday Night Raw. It would just be like a fan belt fest, but they're actually the workers. Just everybody's walking around with a title over their shoulder, going to concessions and buying merch, looking like a real goddamn weirdo. No, I love that. That's phenomenal. I'm okay with it. From the Jersey Observer and Jersey Journal on 4-20-1923, Plastina and Calza wrestle to a draw, and Cora defeated Anna McDonald via toehold in eight minutes. So single fall, catches the submission, turns her over. That is that. And again, I do want to point out if you are, again, just jumping in for the first time and you hear about these submission holds, it's not like a UFC fight or a jiu-jitsu match or a nogi submission wrestling match. Submissions were used to their own end where you'd crank a hold, the person would give up, that's the end of the fall. But more often than not, a hold like a toe hold is you crank it slowly so the person has to roll over onto their back. It's using submission holds to force pinfalls because otherwise everybody either has to fake broken bones or has legit broken bones. And it's a little hard to have everybody injured from submission holds and try to run a sport. Which is honestly a very interesting way to do things when you look at the fact that that's something you don't really see hardly anything of now in finishes people either have a submission finish or they have a uh impact finish or it's a quick roll-up and really the only time you would see that kind of using a submission to get someone back onto their shoulders is someone reversing a submission to roll them back to catch a quick pinfall not the same thing at all yeah the tap out from a submission hold is the norm because the UFC made it the norm. We, right. People know, they recognize that. 
Yeah, so we now live in a world where you see how submission holds are done in a mixed martial arts fight. Well, if you're trying to create simulated combat and tie it to that, you kind of have to do the same thing where it's either, you know, tapping out to the hold or going unconscious from the choke. You can sell it either way, but it's just a simple like slow crank to turn it over is antithetical to how sporting people are used to seeing it. So therefore it's harder to understand. So why not just make it look like a legitimate use of a hold? Right. Makes sense. But yeah, definitely interesting because yeah, you don't, you really don't see that, which good reasoning. From the April 25th, 1923 Battleboro Reformer, women's match thrilling feature, Miss Livingston gets two falls to one for Miss Kennard. Nesbitt fails to throw Woods twice. Appendicitis prevents Stasiak appearance. Quote, oh no. Quote, Probably the largest number of wrestling fans ever gathered under one roof in Battleboro was present at the auditorium last night to witness the triple wrestling contest, which proved one of the best wrestling entertainments ever given here. The event did not begin until 8.30 due to the long line of fans that were clamoring for admission. Wow. And it was after 11 o'clock when the auditorium was finally emptied. And here's the thing. That's not the usual reason that a wrestling show doesn't start on time. <laughs> that is 100%. Why? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, no. Yeah. Usually it's the promoter looking out the window going, we'll give it like an extra 20 just to see if people show up. Yeah. They normally no. don't. Yeah. Not, not often um, does a show get, get postponed slightly for the sake of people not getting into the building in time. I can tell you one show that occasionally does that. Boom, 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 boom. It's mine. But, you know. <laughs> At Lucha Libre laughs. Tickets oh. now available. Back to the article. Quote, the contest between Cora Livingston, the champion lady wrestler of the world, and Hazel Kennard of New Bedford, the New England champ, except for Miss Livingston. I, that's a weird way to put it which in many ways was the feature contest of the evening. Miss Livingston won two of the three falls, but not until she had participated in one of the most spirited contests with one of the most promising lady wrestlers in the world. So really putting over Hazel Kennard in this, uh, this match. Yeah. Again, you know, it is important when you are a traveling champion to make people look good to create stars so they'll be excited about a rematch when you come back through a few months later. Makes sense. And I mean, I don't know how much longer Cora was planning on wrestling, whether she did that or not. It's good to build up future stars. So, you know, the business continues and whatnot. From the November 17th, 1923, Appleton, Wisconsin, Post Crescent, Appleton woman seeks wrestling champion. Miss Mary Diedrich earns right to meet world champion. Quote, An Appleton woman is looming as one of the most formidable contenders of the Women's Championship of the United States. She is Miss Mary Diedrich, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. William Diedrich, 300 South River Street, Appleton, Wisconsin. Once again, doxing the women who are competing in pro wrestling. <laughs> Not good. Don't do it. Not great. The article is just my modern tradition. The article is just a brag piece about how tough the local gal is, and is concluded with quote, 
I'm going to take that world's title back to good old Wisconsin. And the article does a strange thing by referring to her shoot name, as we say in the biz, but lets us know that, quote, Miss Diedrich is known in the theatric and athletic circles as Virginia Mercereau. So, yeah, we're, we're not just doxing her, we're giving her the business. Yeah, we're giving her shoot business up front and then saying, here is the name of her wrestling character. Let's not. Let's all just not. Let's maintain some semblance of privacy. And I thought this was interesting as a timestamp of the era. On the same page, an article about a raid on an illegal alcohol operation, seizing 300 gallons of mash, 200 gallons of alleged moonshine, and a 15-gallon still. Jesus fucking Christ. Yes, this was during Prohibition times, which means that wrestling fans were theoretically sober. Oh, don't like that. Yeah, you'd have a hard time working those shows. (laughs) Yeah, you go out to the crowd, somebody give me a drink, and it's like a carton of chocolate milk. Oh, man, I already have a hard enough time popping a comeback after, like, a tall boy fucking pours heavy. I don't need a chocolate milk. From the Boston Globe, November 27th, 1923, announcing Cora versus Virginia Mussereau as part of the Thanksgiving wrestling show at the Grand Opera House, Thanksgiving was the 29th that year. Promoted by Paul Bowser. Main event was Angelo Taramashi and Ahmed Suleiman, the Turkish Terror. Ooh, that's good. The next day, the Globe had a listing of Thanksgiving sports and listed the main as Vladik Zabisco versus Hans Steinecke, which I would also have made the main event and bumped the other down the card. On November 30th, 1923, Boston Globe, quote, Cora Livingston, claimant of the female championship of the world, won a brisk contest with Virginia Mercereau at the end of 10 minutes of furious grappling. Miss Mercereau fell into a hip lock that ended the bout. Sounds very definitive, doesn't it? It does. It does indeed. Well, just you wait. Oh, oh, the plot thickens. But in the meantime, the Vermont Phoenix, which is from Vermont, not Phoenix, and certainly not Phoenix, Vermont, which is not a city. On 11-30-1923, Steinburn versus Bailey, Cora Livingston and Mae Kelly also secured season's last wrestling match here next Tuesday. December 3rd, 1923, Battleboro Reformer, quarter page ad, champion who is here tomorrow night. Full-body photo of Cora in a basic black singlet and boots in a crouch, hyping her match versus Mae Kelly, quote, Whenever she appears on the wrestling bill, the audience is largely made up of ladies. In Boston last week, she wrestled before over 4,000 fans, of which one-third consisted of ladies. That's huge. Yeah, and it is really cool to see wrestling being advertised as four women involving women with a woman on the poster. So in the 1920s, you saw wrestling at a more progressive state than it was in the 90s and most of the 2000s. No, really. I mean, so Tokyo Joshi in Japan, obviously, does a setup where they have a whole women's section and women's tickets are less expensive than their standard tickets, which again, I think is fantastic. It's an all women's promotion. 
market to women, make them more comfortable coming to shows. Great. Yeah. And it's something that is, it's very funny when there was always the loud theory, mostly coming from people like Vince McMahon and Eric Bischoff and, and Vince Russo, kind of that wrestling is for and by and involving white men. You know, you can't put over the luchas. Queer characters were freaks and perverts at best, monsters at worst. Women were there for sex appeal and degradation. So to see wrestling in these days being presented like this makes you wonder what the fuck happened. And then you remember how society works and you go, oh, yeah, right. All, all of that. Oh, uh, yes. The patriarchy. From the Northa Adams, Massachusetts transcript on December 5th, 1923, had the results. George Farmer Bailey defeated Milo Steinborn in two straight falls. Cora beat May Kelly in two out of three. And now we get into something a little weird. From the Appleton Post Crescent on December 7th, 1923. Appleton Girl Woman's Mat Champion. Miss Virginia Mercereau, woman wrestler, better known in Appleton as Marie Diederich, is a determined sort of young woman. She now claims the world's wrestling championship for women and offers to defend her claim against all comers because Miss Livingston, erstwhile champion, has refused to accept her challenge to a finish match. Late in November, Miss Livingston agreed to throw Miss Mercereau in two straight falls, but after the Boston girl won the first fall, she refused to come back for the second, claiming she was suffering from a sore throat. The Appleton wrestler claimed wow. The Appleton wrestler claimed the forfeit, but the judges gave it to her opponent, saying she was ill and unable to continue. Miss Mercereau then challenged the champion to a finish match, and after Miss Livingston has not accepted the deficit in five days, the Wisconsin girl claimed the title. Did you know you could just claim a title? Really? So what you're saying is I could be the TNA Knockouts champion. Yeah, if you just challenge for it and they don't accept your challenge and a certain amount of time goes by, you just go, cool, you forfeited your championship to me. So so here's the thing. I see that either going over phenomenally on Twitter or really, really bad. No in between. Yeah, it is a very either or proposition. Yeah, and I, I think the phenomenally is where like just like no one sees it. Not like a you get the belt. Like the best case scenario is it just gets swept right under the rug and they go, oh, you. Well, what was happening here is Mercereau was claiming, hey, I went into this and it was supposed to be two out of three and she didn't come back for the second one. And therefore I deserved a rematch and she wouldn't grant it. And you know what? That's a forfeit. So therefore I'm the champion of the world. No, I don't have the belt. Cora still has it, but I'm the real champion here. And the local press in Wisconsin ran with that. They propped her up as the women's world champion. Other promoters down South also latched onto Mercereau as the women's champion. So while Cora was sitting there in Boston, being the legitimate champion, wrestling around New England, up in Domain, over in Wisconsin and parts of the South, you now had somebody else saying that by default, I am the women's champion. And Ooh. it turned into a much more interesting story than I expected. 
Corey Santos at SlamWrestling.net had a different take on things because he talked about how there is the story that, you know, Bowser refused to acknowledge that she won by forfeit, that the match was supposed to be two out of three, but Cora didn't fulfill her obligations versus the way Cora and Paul Bowser told it. He does a great breakdown. It's on SlamWrestling.net. It's worth checking out. Absolutely. It's a great little two-part biography about Virginia Mercereau. My take on things is that Mercereau's story probably, um, bullshit. Because I will always side with the press take on things because the sports paper going to the matches and they are presented with what seems to be a one fall match and they don't say, oh, Cora was sick and didn't come out for the second. Because when people right. were injured or too tired or whatever and didn't come back for the second, that was noteworthy. In yeah. the papers, she just won a one-fall match, and that was that. So I feel that saying it was supposed to be a two out of three and all this other stuff probably didn't happen. Does that mean it definitely didn't happen? No, of course not. But that's what my gut tells me as a historian, as a promoter, as somebody involved in the sport. Phenomenal way to get publicity, though. Oh, absolutely. Because she was, in several states, acknowledged as the women's champion of the world. That's, that's going to be my new moniker. But we'll talk more about her later. The Boston Globe on December 16th, 1923, announces a wrestling carnival at the Howard, featuring Cora Livingston, Stanley Stasiak, who's Polish, Angelo Taramashi, Italian, and Savage Tulos, who's Greek. So ethnicity and a woman. That's how you promote wrestling, folks, right there. If only that was an exaggeration. And another horrible thing I noticed on the same page, a large ad for Powder River, U.S. official government war motion pictures, showing the activities of every division that saw actual service in France. Eleven cameramen were sh killed shooting these pictures. Tremont Temple, Yay. twice daily. Matinees, 50 cents. Children, 25 cents. So, yes, the big selling point is that 11 cameramen were fucking killed making this war movie. Yeah, and, you know, a nice, wholesome family movie. Bring, yeah. bring the kids. Yeah, bring the kids and experience the nightmarish horror of World War I. Christ. wonder if they did something like a William Castle gimmick where... They actually have fireworks going off in the background or during like a mustard gas attack. They just flooded a fog machine in there. Who knows? Probably not. What a terrible thing to even think. Uh, we would never. The ad for the Howard was, of course, amazing. This is Champ Week, so designated by management because we're going to parade to view the big wrestling champions of the world and let you get a line on their ability as grapple kings and queens. Never before an athletic circle such as an array of talent has been secured. Also, round the town burlesque. Always something doing, 1 till 11 at the Howard. See, it just seems like a fun time. When are you rebranding the Oriental? I want to do a book just about the Howard at this point. Hell yeah. with wrestling and all these wrestling stars. I want to just do a long-running tv show like cheers but it's at the howard yes one to eleven always something doing 
The ad listed all the wrestlers previously mentioned who were wrestling every afternoon and night. The image was a drawing from the photo of Cora in the singlet that was recently being used. So again, you have all the big male stars on the card, but what's the image? A drawing of Cora. The draw is the draw. From the Lynn, Massachusetts Daily Item on December 20th, 1923, review of the matches at the Odd Fellows Hall in Cliftondale two nights earlier, which was a success. Quote, however, there is some discussion as to whether or not women should be allowed to grapple with each other. But the exhibition between Cora Livingston and Bobby Miller was conducted with all the propriety that such an event should have, and, although there were a few who apparently disapproved of the bout, the applause that greeted the female wrestlers after finishing their bout would indicate that female grapplers are welcome to the staid old town. So it's just like a weird little mention of, hey, there's a couple of squares who didn't enjoy this, but everybody else had fun. So the usual. Yeah, it, it made me think of, there was a, a thing I read about the new Doctor Who season that just concluded with the specials where they brought David Tennant back. And they ha the BBC received like 143 calls complaining about a transgendered actress being involved in the show just because, oh no, a trans person exists, I disapprove. And they pointed out, millions of people watched this. 140-something complained, and they can get fucked. So this kind of had that vibe in much more polite terms. Yeah, absolutely. From the Greensboro record, February 24th, 1924. Woman wrestling champion has usual feminine interests when dress is talked, writers find. It's a fluff piece about Miss Virginia Mercero. Yep, she is still claiming... Hey. She is still claiming to be the women's champion. The article goes over her rich athletic background, including basketball and boxing, as well as wrestling. The article goes over her rich athletic background, including basketball and boxing, as well as wrestling, and how she beat such women wrestlers as Hazel Kennard, Mae Kelly, and Bobby Miller. Quote, Before Cora Livingston, former women's champion, would consent to wrestle with her, Miss Mercereau finally met Miss Livingston, however, and on last Thanksgiving, won from her the women's world title. Again, this is such a weird story. She lost in one fall, claimed that it was supposed to be two out of three, and that Cora forfeited. And now the press in some areas is accepting her as the champ and giving her fluff pieces in the sports pages. This story is even part of Cora's official biography in the Buffalo Sports Hall of Fame. The Greensboro record clearly championed Mercero as the real title holder. February 3rd, 1924, woman wrestler has busy slate in near future. Virginia Mercero, world's wrestling champion, who is again to appear here Tuesday night, is to be a busy grappler during the month of March, having matches in Danville, Knoxville, Nashville, Memphis, and Arkansas City. I don't remember, were those the same cities that got monorails and the Simpsons that didn't work? <laughs> I like to think so. Negotiations are now being made by Sergeant Huffing to match Miss Cora Livingston, former world title holder, with Miss Mercereau here at the big police wrestling show to be held at the Grand soon. Miss Livingston, through her manager Paul Bowser of Boston, wants another chance against the present title holder and Al Ketchell, 
erstwhile manager of the champion, has told Mr. Huffing that he is willing to allow his charge to meet Miss Livingston here in two out of three falls, winner take all, to show the fans who is the real boss among the women grapplers. What a fucking carny, man. The audacity, the condescension, the tone. You can he will allow it. You can read it in their frickin' words, just the snottiness about it, where it's like, we'll allow this to happen, but we set the terms. Ugh. So smarmy. The fucking heels. And Boston wrestling fans got a weird one at the Grand Opera House, according to the Boston Globe, on March 21st, 1924. George Katsanaros was injured in his match against Stanley Stasiak and couldn't continue in their main event. Cora failed to throw Bell Lamar twice in a handicap match, and Angelo Taramashi and Farmer Bailey staged a boxing match that the referee declared a no contest. The Cora match was the typical bit of business, where she lost a handicap match to set up a two-a-finish match on Thursday, April 3rd. The Boston Globe reported that she won two out of three falls. Also on the card... Count Nicholas Sanaroff, a newcomer from Russia, wrestled Stanley Stasiak for one hour and one minute. He fell dazed after working his way out of six headlocks. Which I, I can't decide. Is six headlocks a lot or not very many under the course of an hour? It depends on how long they're held. And I want to know like how he took that final bump after escaping the final headlock. Did he, like, pop up days, like, take a couple of steps and do, like, a flare-style front flare bump? bump? Did he, like, spin out of it and, like, twirl, 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 and, like, held his, he held his hand to his forehead and fainted away into the ropes? I, I, don't, just, oh, but I, I, I like I, to I think just, he backflipped out of it. Yeah, I just, I just love the drama of him falling dazed after working his way out of six headlocks. And also, if you run a one-hour match and it ends with somebody fainting out of a headlock... Boo to you. I'm sure. <laughs> From the April 13th Boston Globe, an advertisement for Cora and Stasiak at the Howard. Image used to advertise was a drawing of Cora working a standing hold on an opponent. Also on the card, the Struttin' Around Company will provide the burlesque show, Ernie and Ernie, the Dancing Monopedes, which means two guys with one foot each doing a dance. <laughs> James Sullivan, the singing comedian, and three short films, all starting at 3 o'clock. And if you're not getting your money's worth from that, I don't know what to tell you. I'm entertained, and I didn't even get to see the show. I'm just imagining it. Having a nice time. From the Greenfield Daily Recorder, April 16th, 1924, women wrestlers to perform here. Cora was booked against Celia Pontius, or properly termed Pontos, Woman champ of Canada, so a rematch from very early in her career. You might remember Celia Pontos as being one of her first big opponents back in Buffalo. The article points out, quote, Although her claim to the championship has often been disputed, the crown has never been wrestled from her. Which is a nice way to, like, kind of support her as the women's champion without mentioning the pseudo-champion over in Appleton. That bitch. The same paper on the 22nd gives the promoter some room to brag. Quote, Those who were disappointed in their endeavors to secure reserved seats for the last bout are making their reservations early for tomorrow night's affair, and the advance sale is larger. 
the management has arranged for several more rows of chairs on the main floor to accommodate the crowd which is expected. Many of the requests for reservations are coming from women fans who are anxious to see the two girls in action. So, yes, there's no promoter brag like, hey, the people who missed out last time were buying pre-sales now, and we had to get extra chairs to set up to accommodate all you fans who are coming out to watch this, and especially so many women who are coming to watch Cora's match. What? Yeah. It's great to be able to say all of that. And yeah, what great advertising. The results came in via the April 24th, 1924 North Adams transcript. Cora defeated Celia Pontos, now Pontiac in the paper. Two out of three falls. Cora got the first in 18 minutes. Celia the second in 26 seconds. That's right, you heard me, 26 seconds with a headlock and body scissors. And Cora got the third in 14 minutes with an arm, scissors, and hammerlock. Which, I always want to hear how they went over that match. It's like, okay, so I'm going to do this, 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 and this. Okay, your fault. I slip on a banana peel, you headlock takeover, that's that. And then back to me yeah. kicking your ass. Which is, which is great. Great match structure. The Cora went out there with her fucking working boots on. <laughs> The Battleboro Reformer, Vermont again, May 27th, 1924, advertised Cora versus Hazel Kennard as the featured match under Farmer Bailey versus Angelo Taramachi that Friday at the Armory. The Reformer had the results in their 531 edition. It was a one-fall match, won by Cora in 12 minutes with a headlock. Quote, but Hazel was the favorite and had the advantage most of the way. She was more aggressive and in the early parts of the match gave the champion some punishment with a double toehold. And I want to know what a double toehold is and how it looks. Because you don't have enough arms to do two toeholds. So I'm curious. It's where, if, you, it's where you hold two toes. Yeah, I'm curious if it looked something more like a Boston Crab or something like that. Yeah, that would make sense. And we have another big gap. You know, granted, there was a wrestling season still in these days. So during the hot summer months, there really wasn't a lot going on. So that makes sense. But on November 7th, 1924, on the undercard of Count Zarinov, Ukrainian Matman, versus Jack Albright, Cora failed to throw Louise Gardner inside the 10-minute time limit. This, of course, set up a to-a-finish rematch, which had a wild ending. From the Montreal Star, quote, Cora, while peeved, slaps critical fan and loses her bout. Boston, November 28th, quote, Between a heckling woman wrestling fan and a stranglehold, Cora Livingston, Boston woman, lost her temper and the decision in her match with Louise Gardner of Wakefield at the Grand Opera House here. Early in the one-fall affair, Cora slipped away from her opponent, climbed out of the ring, and slapped a woman who had been jeering her and rooting for Miss Gardner. I love Cora Livingston. She is an inspiration. The officials tore the two apart, and getting back into the ring, Cora vented her rage on Louise and administered a stranglehold, which she refused to relinquish it. The judges disqualified her and gave Louise the match. Holy crap, like we're kind of back to old Cora with a new trick. The I'm Cora gonna... doesn't give a shit. Yeah, Cora just straight fucks up an audience member in 1925. So <laughs> I don't I assume it was a plant. I assume it's a work. 
but the visual i hope it wasn't yeah it would be amazing if it wasn't but just cora livingston just having enough of a heckler breaking out mid-match rolling out of the ring and slapping the shit out of a woman in the crowd a girl. From the Boston Globe on January 6th, 1925, during the Boston and Maine YMCA shop night, a fundraiser of sorts, Cora was wrestling Louise Savoy. Quote, Louise gave the crowd much to laugh at by her wisecracks during the bouts, and the wisecracks handed back to her were funny in the extreme. Can you believe that they are ruining the seriousness of wrestling by one Sanctity of, the... of wrestling. Yeah, they're just making jokes mid-match, trying to get the crowd to laugh. Can you believe somebody would do this in this super serious sport? No, the mind boggles. I would never, I would never, I would never disrespect the beautiful art of the sport of wrestling like that. And if you want to see a woman wrestler trying to bust up the crowd, trying to make people laugh mid-match, breaking the fourth wall Deadpool style. Well, do not Google any Heidi Howitzer matches. You will not see anything of the sort. You will not see that happening. Pure, clean, technical sportsmanship. And while it is a silly sport with serious overtones or a serious sports with silly overtones or undertones or some sort of tones, we unfortunately are out of time. We're going to keep this series going it's very funny to think when I pitched this idea, I thought this was going to be two or three parts. I didn't know just how much amazing raw material I was going to keep finding. So it is exciting to see Cora Livingston's story matching the length of Tom Jenkins or the Goldust Trio, because it's amazing to see her presented and documented as being just as important to the sport as somebody like Jenkins, Lewis, Gotch. Yeah, granted, she was working on the undercard. She was working in the vaudeville halls. But at this point, her career is getting close to two decades deep. She is still a star. She's still main eventing. She's still the champion, no matter what a certain woman in Appleton might say, and the press mm -hmm. behind her, but she can get fucked. How are you liking this still? Uh, it's great. I especially love that uh, Cora's popping bitches in the audience now. You love to see it. Nice callback. Yeah, it's fun to see fun being had. Because do keep in mind, wrestling was getting more wild at this time. You would have people like Ed Lewis, you know, kind of chasing people into the crowd. You would have riots nearly happening. So yes, maybe this was an attempt to kind of cash in on that. Maybe she just had a funny idea. Maybe it was a shoot and she was just having a shitty time and decided to <laughs> shut that woman up. Who can say, wasn't there, not me. No time machine, can't do an interview. Shame, really. But in the meantime, I want to thank Lydia and Steve who made donations to the research for this show. If you have a couple bucks lying around that you're not using, my Venmo is in the show description. No pressure, no guilt. I would do this show for free no matter what. But hey, a couple of bucks to help keep the show going. Always accepted. It's not free to keep this online, but it's worthwhile no matter what. Make sure you follow us on social media because I try to post as many of the ads from the Howard, photos that I find, fun headlines, up as much as humanly possible, or 
as human as I am, as organized as I am. I'm doing my best, gosh darn it. But we'll be back in a couple of weeks with Cora Livingston Part 11. The story is winding down, but it's not done yet, and there's still plenty of wild stuff to cover. So, for now, and for Heidi Howitzer, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Okay.